You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Parties unknown are fishing for government credentials in at least eight countries. Some other parties unknown are compromising Telegram accounts in Russia. Lateral movement is in the news, but not the good Lamar Jackson kind. A familiar order of battle in the crypto wars emerges again. NSA's IG report on SIGINT data retention and a peek into what we suppose we must call the minds of some of the people hacking ring systems. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, December 13th, 2019. Researchers at Anomaly describe a phishing campaign apparently intended to harvest credentials from some 22 government agencies and government contractors in several countries around the world. U.S. targets have received the most attention, but Australia, China, Japan, Mexico, Peru, Poland, and Sweden were also prospected. The U.S. targets include the Departments of Commerce, Energy, and Veteran Affairs. No one, ZDNet says, has any idea who's behind the operation or what their ultimate objective might be, but there's some speculation that the goal might be industrial espionage or some related form of criminal activity. The phishing emails directed victims to a site where they were asked to enter their credentials. About 120 bogus sites were deployed over the course of the campaign. Forbes reports that Group IB is investigating compromises of Telegram accounts belonging to a number of Russian entrepreneurs. Attribution in this case is also mysterious, but Group IB doesn't think the incidents involve any flaw in the messaging app. The researchers do note that Telegram credentials are being widely traded in the dark web. In the course of its investigation of exploits leaked by the shadow brokers, Zscaler has found a botnet it's calling Bool Hero, that excels at lateral movement within its targets. The more lateral movement an attack technique is capable of, the more dangerous it is to the networks it infests. TechDirt reports that Representative Ro Khanna, a Democrat of California, representing the California 17th District, which includes much of Silicon Valley, sent a pro-encryption letter to Senator Graham, Republican of South Carolina, who's running the Judiciary Committee's hearing on encryption. Representative Khanna's position is pro-encryption, as is the position of most of the tech companies. He also attached a letter from Pentagon CIO Dana Deasy that stressed the importance and value of strong end-to-end encryption. Deasy's letter to Representative Khanna said, in part, quote, The importance of strong encryption and VPNs for our mobile workforce is imperative. He closed with this sentence. 
The department believes maintaining a domestic climate for state-of-the-art security and encryption is critical to the protection of our national security. This seems to have been the pattern in the crypto wars, at least in the U.S. The Defense Department has been notably more pro-encryption than the Department of Justice. The intelligence community has been quieter, but generally hasn't shown much disposition to jump on the anti-encryption bandwagon. To some extent, this almost certainly reflects agencies' disposition to approve of the things that make their jobs easier. Encryption makes the DOD's job easier, but it makes justice's job harder. In the U.S., NSA's Inspector General has found deficiencies in the agency's data retention procedures. Some signals intelligence data have been retained beyond limits established by law and policy. The IG looked at two representative data stores and found that the agency had retained a small percentage of the large number of SIGINT data objects beyond legal and policy retention limits. As the IG pointed out in the report's conclusion, the deficiencies the investigation found could have an effect on privacy and civil liberties. The conclusion isn't that there's a major scandal or a great deal of nefarious collection underway, but rather that NSA has some work to do on compliance. And compliance in this matter is important since it touches safeguards of civil liberties. The IG made 11 recommendations to improve NSA's compliance procedures. The agency accepted the findings and is working to bring its procedures into compliance. The IG's report can also serve as a cautionary tale. Anyone who thinks compliance is easy should ask NSA, which is a well-resourced and professional agency. And finally, did you know, have you heard, there are creeps abroad in cyberspace. We've been seeing accounts of people whose ring cameras, which they've installed for the home security the system is designed to provide, have been hacked into by various alleged human beings who then use the system to wake people in the middle of the night, telling people, I can see you in bed, frighten and swear at small children, try to teach small children racist epithets, and so on. Do these seem oddly pointless actions? Yet someone's doing it. We're sorry to say that at least some of those someones are, well, podcasters. Many of the most repellent hacks were featured on the Nulledcast podcast, live-streamed on Discord, Vice Reports, Vice's account offers an interesting inside look at the geniuses behind Nulledcast. Apparently, it was funny, a joke, you know, like what you might see on Jackass or Impractical Jokers. Once the hacks began to gain media attention, most disapprovingly, so bravo media on this one, the podcasters struck a new high-minded and socially responsible tone, writing, Nulled does not and will not tolerate the harassments of individuals over ring cameras or similar. So the grammar's off, but the sentiment is surely one your high school civics teacher would approve of. There's also some evidence that the performance artists of the ring caper are hearing footsteps of law enforcement. Vice found the following message on the Nulledcast Discord server. Hey, Nulledcast fans, we need to calm down on the ring trolling. We have three investigations and two of us are already probably effed. Drop suggestions on what else we should do. It will still happen, just on a smaller scale. Thanks. The nulled cast. That's not exactly a ringing call to straighten up and fly right, but at least they have the wit to realize that being effed is a bad thing. But if they are really effed, it couldn't happen to an effing better bunch of effers. So why did they do it? Hope for the glory of being an influencer and remoter, but more glittering hopes of influence-pumped wealth? Maybe. But it still seems like motiveless malice. Motiveless malice is, alas, common enough in cyberspace, but it's also not new. After all, Iago did it for the lulls. 
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. Daniel, it's always great to have you back. Um, we wanted to touch today about uh, some research that you all are working on when it comes to IoT and specifically some cybersecurity test beds. What do you have to share with us? Well, at Lancaster, one of the key things that we do is build things. It's one of the core parts of our research. Yes, we do the theoretical stuff, but we also like to do a lot of the applied research are really testing what it's like in a real environment. But as part of that, we build a lot of test beds. And one of the test beds we've been working on for nearly a decade now is our industrial control systems research test bed. And that's slowly over the last couple of years that's starting to develop into uh, an Internet of Things test bed where we can really uh, tackle some of the, the more interesting cybersecurity problems. But one of the challenges that we're finding, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, is that when you move from ICS to, to IoT, you're moving to this completely different physical process. So with industrial control systems, actually it's quite straightforward to create something that emulates a water treatment work or an electricity grid. Notwithstanding those are quite complex, but uh, it's a defined and scoped process. But the problem with a lot of IoT type work is the process you're trying to emulate and simulate is that of people, that of a group of people working in a building. If you're thinking about industrial IoT, yes, again, that's uh, related to uh, industrial processes. But a lot of the IoT technology that sits around that also interacts with humans in a slightly different way than just your pure industrial control system. So one of the challenges we're trying to tackle here at Lancaster is how do we build an IoT testbed that enables us to have high accuracy around uh, the human aspect of interaction with that, those systems. Is it a matter of that there's a much greater degree of complexity? 
Well, yeah, so when you think about, say, you're trying to uh, simulate an IoT smart environment for a building. So you take the building that I work in, InfoLab, you know, there's 60 academics, academics that work in there, uh, about 40 support staff. Then you've got a whole number of businesses. So you've got about 20 businesses that work in that building. They've got four or five staff as well. So you're talking several hundred people going in and out of that space. And then you've got a cafe in there as well. So it's a great place to work, but you've got lots of people going through. Now, if we wanted to simulate or, or, or practice in that smart environment, yes, we can scope it down. But how do we scale it up? You know, how do we simulate the behavior or emulate the behavior or capture the real world behavior of 200, 300 people on a day to day basis? Hmm. Sitting around that is all the privacy and ethics concerns. And this is one of the big challenges that we're facing as we're starting to develop our IoT research is that the actual physical process that we need to test is that of human beings interacting in a social environment. And I suppose the, the range of potential devices that can be brought in and made part of an IoT network is much broader than what you would have to deal with with ICS. Yeah, and one of the, the key things there as well is that the, the range of devices are also the attack vectors. And you're never quite certain, actually, what the attacker might be trying to do. We've heard all sorts of stories about attackers breaking into organizations via temperature sensors in fish tanks, for example. Mm. Um, and they all hang off similar or interconnected networks. And a key part of the, the attack for IoT is really that human element. In a, probably, in, I would suggest, in a way that's much different to the ICS test beds that, that we're used to. Because of that, it's really important that we understand the way that the individuals interact with that IoT environment much more than perhaps we do with ICS test beds. All right. Well, it's interesting research, to be sure. Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is David Belson. He's Senior Director of Internet Research and Analysis at the Internet Society, a group that has its origins in the Internet Engineering Task Force. Their stated mission is to support and promote the development of the Internet as a global technical infrastructure, a resource to enrich people's lives and a force for good in society. My conversation with David Belson focuses on Russia's sovereign Internet law and how efforts like it may ultimately affect a free and open global Internet. So, I mean, right now, obviously, um, the law, the, the sovereign Internet law, is focused on um, Russia and the Russian Internet in terms of tightening uh, control over it uh, with respect to DNS, with respect to um, filtering and, and deep packet inspection and so on. The way it impacts the rest of the global internet, uh, I guess, is a couplefold. One is that uh, it may make it more challenging for users outside of Russia to access uh, resources that are hosted within the country. 
So if you are an expat uh, and you want to access Yandex or another tool or application that's hosted within the country, it may be the case that it slows down or just becomes unaccessible for, uh, for users from certain countries. Um, but I think that the bigger threat, to be honest, is that other countries uh, are, are looking at this and monitoring the, the effort, monitoring the, the potential success, and looking to implement something similar uh, within their countries. Uh, we saw this with uh, Iran last month, for instance. Uh, they had a, a multi-day internet shutdown there, and uh, you know, talking to some of the folks within the industry, uh, it appears that it may have been something of a trial run uh, for their national intranet, uh, which they've been talking about uh, doing for several years. Yeah, I, I've heard some uh, policy folks refer to it as the splinternet. That you know, we'll, we'll have these sort of perhaps islands around the world. What does it mean for Internet providers, the folks who are routing the traffic around the globe? It's a complex system to start with, Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's going to wind up adding complexity because you now have potentially these islands um, of of connectivity that exist within a country or outside of the country. So, you know, questions of how do I route this traffic? Uh, If the traffic's coming from within one of these splinter countries, uh, you know, does it get routed outside the country or does it have to stay within? If I'm a, an international provider, an international backbone provider, I need to figure out, you know, can I uh, reach uh, endpoints within that given country? And if so, uh, how? The Russian uh, model now is talking about only exchanging traffic at specific approved uh, internet exchange points. So that may create challenges as well for these international providers where today, because the Russian internet has grown up uh, a little more freely uh, over the years, there are... Um, Dozens of uh, internet exchange points out there, uh, or within the country, excuse me, connecting hundreds of networks. Um, so, so that may change if I'm an international network provider or an international content provider going forward under this new law. Does it mean that we'll end up with some some pinch points where you know all data has to route through specific uh, areas um, for inspection, if you will, you know, a, a border stop uh, virtually? Yeah, I, I, under this law, yes, absolutely. In Russia, they, that's what they've said is that domestic traffic will have to only be exchanged uh, within these approved uh, internet exchange points. Um, there is a component within the law about switching to a, a uh, effectively a national. DNS system, so basically where they can control the ability to enable a user to get to Twitter.com or, or what have you, Wikipedia, whatever. Not only are they potentially limiting the number of exchange points that the traffic can go through, but they're also talking about implementing uh, filtering and, and things like deep packet inspection at those exchange points. My understanding is that the providers locally are starting to warn users that this may result in, in slower services, ultimately, you know, because all, those tra- all the traffic has to go through those now limited number of pinch points. Do we suppose that uh, folks are going to spin up workarounds? I mean, I'm imagining sort of the internet version of pirate radio stations. <laughs> it's likely that they will try to. Um, you know, my understanding is that there's already been some efforts online to talk about, okay, if this goes into place, here's how we can get around it. Uh, you know, that may be VPNs, it may be using alternative DNS providers, it may be using alternative tools that can... Um, enable traffic to masquerade. Uh, so, so, you know, traffic that's normally, um, you know, over one protocol can sort of be smuggled over a different protocol that may not be getting filtered or maybe much harder to filter. So I think that as this is implemented, we'll definitely see efforts to circumvent it. What's been the response from other nations around the world? You know, those who are interested in, in a free and open internet? 
Certainly not a positive one, uh, at least among those countries. For those of us that are, that are interested in a free and open internet, um, we don't want to see something like this. You know, the other challenge as well is that these efforts ultimately reduce internet resilience as a whole. So the internet is a, an interconnected network of networks. It only works successfully when everybody is, is sort of behaving themselves and cooperating. When these things start occurring, it ultimately lowers the, the resiliency of the global internet. That's a bug, not a feature. Russia may be looking at it as a feature, but, but for everybody else, it's, it's really a problem. So, you know, we may not see things immediately, but I think over time we'll have to continue to watch and see, uh, you know, is there, are there any artifacts of, of what they're doing here? But I think that we also need to continue to work as an industry and as a community to convince the um, legislators and the policymakers um, in countries that may be looking at this with interest that this is not the right approach and this is not the road they should be going down. That a, that a free and open internet is critically important and that it has ultimately, you know, a number of benefits for their country. Even if they're looking at it and saying, you know, Jesus allows our citizens to communicate or to organize or what have you, there's a number of other impacts, there are a number of other benefits that an open internet has for them as well that they need to really understand and focus on. That's David Belson from the Internet Society. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.